Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody come back, don't they? Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked room today, didn't you? You tried. How do the dead come back, Mother? What's the secret? Eyes of the Cat by Ruskin Bond, from the collection Time Stops at Shamley, and other stories. Her eyes seemed flecked with gold when the sun was on them, and as the sun set over the mountains, drawing a deep red wound across the sky, there was more than gold in Binya's eyes. There was anger, for she had been cut to the quick by some remarks her teacher had made, the culmination of weeks of insults and taunts. Binya was poorer than most of the girls in her class and could not afford the tuitions that had become almost obligatory if one was to pass and be promoted. You'll have to spend another year in the ninth, said Madame, and if you don't like it, you can find another school, a school where it won't matter if your blouse is torn and your tunic is old and your shoes are falling apart. Madame had shown her large teeth in what was supposed to be a good-natured smile and all the girls had tittered dutifully. Sycophancy had become part of the curriculum in Madame's private academy for girls. On the way home, in the gathering gloom, Binya's two companions commiserated with her. She's a mean old thing, said Usha. She doesn't care for anyone but herself. Her laugh reminds me of a donkey braying, said Sunita, who was more forthright. But Binya wasn't really listening. Her eyes were fixed on some point in the far distance, where the pines stood in silhouette against a night sky that was growing brighter every moment. The moon was rising. A full moon. A moon that meant something very special to Binya, that made her blood tingle and her skin prickle and her hair glow and send out sparks. Her steps seemed to grow lighter, her limbs more sinewy as she moved gracefully, softly, over the mountain path. Abruptly, she left her companions at a fork in the road. I'm taking the shortcut through the forest, she said. Her friends were used to her sudden whims. They knew she wasn't afraid of being alone in the dark. But Binya's moods made them feel a little nervous, and now, holding hands, they hurried home along the open road. The shortcut took Binya through the dark oak forest. The crooked, tormented branches of the oaks threw twisted shadows across the path. A jackal howled at the moon. A nightjar called from the bushes. Binya walked fast, not out of fear, but from urgency, and her breath came in short, sharp gasps. Bright moonlight bathed the hillside when she reached her home on the outskirts of the village. Refusing her dinner, she went straight to her small room and flung the window open. Moonbeams crept over the windowsill and over her arms, which were already covered with golden hair. Her strong nails had shredded the rotten wood of the windowsill. Tail swishing and ears pricked, the tawny leopard came swiftly out of the window, crossed the open field behind the house, and melted into the shadows. A little later, it padded silently through the forest. Although the moon shone brightly on the tin-roofed town, the leopard knew where the shadows were deepest and merged beautifully with them. An occasional intake of breath, which resulted in a short rasping cough, was the only sound it made. Madame was returning from dinner at a ladies' club called the Kitten Club, 
as a sort of foil to their husbands' club affiliations. There were still a few people in the street, and while no one could help noticing Madame, who had the contours of a steamroller, none saw or heard the predator who had slipped down a side alley and reached the steps of the teacher's house. It sat there silently, waiting with all the patience of an obedient schoolgirl. When Madame saw the leopard on her steps, she dropped her handbag and opened her mouth to scream, but her voice would not materialise, nor would her tongue ever be used again, either to savour chicken biryani or to pour scorn upon her pupils, for the leopard had sprung at her throat, broken her neck, and dragged her into the bushes. In the morning, when Usha and Sunita set out for school, they stopped as usual at Binya's cottage and called out to her. Binya was sitting in the sun combing her long black hair. Aren't you coming to school today, Binya? asked the girls. No, I won't bother to go today, said Binya. She felt lazy, but pleased with herself like a contented cat. Madam won't be pleased, said Usha. Shall we tell her you're sick? It won't be necessary, said Binya, and gave them one of her mysterious smiles. I'm sure it's going to be a holiday. The Eyes Are Not Here by Ruskin Bond I had the compartment to myself up to Rohana, and then a girl got in. The couple who saw her off were probably her parents. They seemed very anxious about her comfort. And when the woman gave the girl detailed instructions as to where to keep her things, when not to lean out of the windows, and how to avoid speaking to strangers, they said their goodbyes. The train pulled out of the station. As I was totally blind at the time, my eyes sensitive only to light and darkness, I was unable to tell what the girl looked like, but I knew she wore slippers from the way they slapped against her heels. It would take me some time to discover something about her looks, and perhaps. I never would, but I liked the sound of her voice, and even the sound of her slippers. Are you going all the way to Dehra? I asked. I must have been sitting in a dark corner, because my voice startled her. She gave a little exclamation and said, I didn't know anyone else was here. Well, it often happens that people with good eyesight fail to see what is right in front of them. They have too much to take in, I suppose. Whereas people who cannot see, or see very little, have to take in only the essentials, whatever registers most tellingly on their remaining senses. I didn't see you either, I said, but I heard you come in. I wondered if I would be able to prevent her from discovering that I was blind. I thought, provided I keep to my seat, it shouldn't be too difficult. The girl said, I'm getting down at Saharanapur. My aunt is meeting me there. Then I had better not be too familiar, I said. Aunts are usually formidable creatures. Where are you going? she asked. To Dehra, and then to Musuri. Oh, how lucky you are. I wish I were going to Musuri. I love the hills, especially in October. Yes, this is the best time, I said, calling on my memories. The hills are covered with wild dahlias. The sun is delicious, and at night you can sit in front of a log fire and drink a little brandy. Most of the tourists have gone, and the roads are quiet and almost deserted. Yes, October is the best time. She was silent, and I wondered if my words had touched her or whether she thought me a romantic fool. Then I made a mistake. What is it like? I asked. 
She seemed to find nothing strange in the question, had she noticed already that I couldn't see. But her next question removed my doubts. Why don't you look out of the window? she asked. I moved easily along the berth and felt for the window ledge. The window was open and I faced it, making a pretense of studying the landscape. I heard the panting of the engine, the rumble of the wheels, and in my mind's eye I could see the telegraph posts flashing by. Have you noticed, I ventured, that the trees seem to be moving while we seem to be standing still? That always happens, she said. Do you see any animals? No, I answered quite confidently. I knew that there were hardly any animals left in the forests near Dera. I turned from the window and faced the girl, and for a while we sat in silence. You have an interesting face, I remarked. I was becoming quite daring, but it was a safe remark. Few girls can resist flattery. She laughed pleasantly, a clear, ringing laugh. It's nice to be told I have an interesting face. I'm tired of people saying I have a pretty face. Oh, so you do have a pretty face, thought I, and aloud I said, Well, an interesting face can also be pretty. You are a very gallant young man, she said. But why are you so serious? I thought then that I would try to laugh for her, but the thought of laughter only made me feel troubled and lonely. We'll soon be at your station, I said. Thank goodness it's a short journey. I can't bear to sit in a train for more than two or three hours. Yet I was prepared to sit there for almost any length of time, just to listen to her talking. Her voice had the sparkle of a mountain stream. As soon as she left the train, she would forget our brief encounter, but it would stay with me for the rest of the journey and for some time after. The engine's whistle shrieked. The carriage wheels changed their sound and rhythm. The girl got up and began to collect her things. I wondered if she wore her hair in a bun, or if it was plaited, or if it hung loose over her shoulders, or if it was cut very short. The train drew slowly into the station. Outside, there was the shouting of porters and vendors and a high-pitched female voice near the carriage door, which must have belonged to the girl's aunt. Goodbye, said the girl. She was standing very close to me so close that the perfume from her hair was tantalising. I wanted to raise my hand and touch her hair, but she moved away, and only the perfume still lingered where she had stood. You may break, you may shatter the vase if you will, but the scent of the roses will linger there still. There was some confusion in the doorway. A man getting into the compartment stammered an apology. Then the door banged shut, and the world was shut out again. I returned to my berth. The guard blew his whistle, and we moved off. Once again, I had a game to play, and a new fellow traveller. The train gathered speed, the wheels took up their song, the carriage groaned and shook. I found the window and sat in front of it, staring into the daylight that was darkness for me. So many things were happening outside the window. It could be a fascinating game, guessing what went on out there. The man who had entered the compartment broke into my reverie. You must be disappointed, he said. I'm sorry I'm not as attractive a travelling companion as the one who just left. She was an interesting girl, I said. Can you tell me, did she keep her hair long or short? I don't remember, he said, sounding puzzled. It was her eyes I noticed, not her hair. She had beautiful eyes, but they were of no use to her. She was completely blind. Didn't you notice?
He said it with arsenic. Is there such a person as a born murderer, in the sense that there are born writers and musicians, born winners and losers? One can't be sure. The urge to do away with troublesome people is common to most of us, but only a few succumb to it. If ever there was a born murderer, he must surely have been William Jones. The thing came so naturally to him. No extreme violence, no messy shootings or hackings or throttling. Just the right amount of poison, administered with skill and discretion. A gentle, civilised sort of person was Mr Jones. He collected butterflies and arranged them systematically in glass cases. His ether bottle was quick and painless. He never stuck pins into the beautiful creatures. Have you ever heard of the Agra double murder? It happened, of course, a great many years ago when Agra was a far-flung outpost of the British Empire. In those days, William Jones was a male nurse in one of the city's hospitals. The patients, especially terminal cases, spoke highly of the care and consideration he showed them. While most nurses, both male and female, preferred to attend to the more hopeful cases, Nurse William was always prepared to stand duty over a dying patient. He felt a certain empathy for the dying. He liked to see them on their way. It was just his good nature, of course. On a visit to nearby Mere Root, he met and fell in love with Mrs. Browning, the wife of the local station master. Impassioned love letters were soon putting a strain on the Agra Meerut postal service. The envelopes grew heavier, not so much because the letters were growing longer, but because they contained little packets of a powdery white substance accompanied by detailed instructions as to its correct administration. Mr. Browning, an unassuming and trustful man, one of the world's born losers, in fact, was not the sort to read his wife's correspondence. Even when he was seized by frequent attacks of colic, he put them down to an impure water supply. He recovered from one bout of vomiting and diarrhoea only to be racked by another. He was hospitalised on a diagnosis of gastroenteritis and thus freed from his wife's ministrations, soon got better. But on returning home and drinking a glass of Nimbupani brought to him by the solicitous Mrs. Browning, he had a relapse from which he did not recover. Those were the days when deaths from cholera and related diseases were only too common in India and death certificates were easier to obtain than dog licences. After a short interval of mourning, it was the hot weather and you couldn't wear black for long. Mrs. Browning moved to Agra, where she rented a house next door to William Jones. I forgot to mention that Mr. Jones was also married. His wife was an insignificant creature, no match for a genius like William. Before the hot weather was over, the dreaded cholera had taken her too. The way was clear for the lovers to unite in holy matrimony. But Dame Gossip lived in Agra too, and it was not long before tongues were wagging and anonymous letters were being received by the superintendent of police. Inquiries were instituted. Like most infatuated lovers, Mrs. Browning had hung on to her beloved's letters and billets doux, and these soon came to light. The silly woman had kept them in a box beneath her bed. Exhumations were ordered in both Agra and Mirut. 
arsenic keeps well, even in the hottest of weather, and there was no dearth of it in the remains of both victims. Mr. Jones and Mrs. Browning were arrested and charged with murder. Is Uncle Bill really a murderer? I asked from the drawing-room sofa in my grandmother's house in Dera. It's time that I told you that William Jones was my uncle, my mother's half-brother. I was eight or nine at the time. Uncle Bill had spent the previous summer with us in Dera and had stuffed me with bizarre sweets and pastries, all of which I had consumed without suffering any ill effects. Who told you that about Uncle Bill? asked Grandmother. I heard it in school. All the boys were asking me the same question. Is your uncle a murderer? They say he poisoned both his wives. He only had one wife, snapped Aunt Mabel. Did he poison her? No, of course not. How can you say such a thing? Then why is Uncle Bill in jail? Who says he's in jail? The boys at school. They heard it from their parents. Uncle Bill is to go on trial in the Agra Fort. There was a pregnant silence in the drawing room. Then Aunt Mabel burst out. It was all that awful woman's fault. Do you mean Mrs. Browning? asked Grandmother. Yes, of course. She must have put him up to it. Bill couldn't have thought of anything so, so diabolical. But he sent her the powders, dear. And don't forget, Mrs. Browning has since Grandmother stopped in mid-sentence. And both she and Aunt Mabel glanced surreptitiously at me. Committed suicide, I filled in. There were still some powders with her. Aunt Mabel's eyes rolled heavenwards. This boy is impossible. I don't know what he'll be like when he grows up. At least I won't be like Uncle Bill, I said. Fancy poisoning people. If I kill anyone, it'll be in a fair fight. I suppose they'll hang, Uncle. Oh, I hope not. Grandmother was silent. Uncle Bill was her stepson, but she did have a soft spot for him. Aunt Mabel, his sister, thought he was wonderful. I had always considered him to be a bit soft, but had to admit that he was generous. I tried to imagine him dangling at the end of a hangman's rope, but somehow he didn't fit the picture. As things turned out, he didn't hang. White people in India seldom got the death sentence. Although the hangman was pretty busy disposing of dacoits and political terrorists, Uncle Bill was given a life sentence and settled down to a sedentary job in the prison library at Naini near Allahabad. His gifts as a male nurse went unappreciated. They didn't trust him in the hospital. He was released after seven or eight years, shortly after the country became an independent republic. He came out of jail to find that the British were leaving, either for England or the remaining colonies. Grandmother was dead. Aunt Mabel and her husband had settled in South Africa. Uncle Bill realised that there was little future for him in India, and he followed his sister out to Johannesburg. I was in my last year at boarding school. After my father's death, my mother had married an Indian, and now my future lay in India. I didn't see Uncle Bill after his release from prison, and no one dreamt that he would ever turn up again in India. In fact, fifteen years were to pass before he came back, and by then I was in my early thirties, the author of a book that had become something of a bestseller. The previous fifteen years had been a struggle, the sort of struggle that every young freelance writer experiences, but at last the hard work was paying off and the royalties were beginning to come in. I was living in a small cottage on the outskirts of the hill station at Foster Gange, working on another book, when I received an unexpected visitor. He was a thin, stooped, grey-haired man in his late fifties, 
with a straggling moustache and discoloured teeth. He looked feeble and harmless, but for his eyes, which were pale, cold blue, there was something slightly familiar about him. Don't you remember me? he asked. Not that I really expect you to, after all these years. Wait a minute, did you teach me at school? No, but you're getting warm. He put his suitcase down and I glimpsed his name on the airline's label. I looked up in astonishment. You're not. You couldn't be. Your Uncle Bill, he said with a grin and extended his hand. None other, and he sauntered into the house. I must admit that I had mixed feelings about his arrival. While I had never felt any dislike for him, I hadn't exactly approved of what he'd done. Poisoning, I felt, was a particularly reprehensible way of getting rid of inconvenient people. Not that I could think of any commendable ways of getting rid of them. Still, it had happened a long time ago. He'd been punished, and presumably he was a reformed character. And what have you been doing all these years, he asked me, easing himself into the only comfortable chair in the room. Oh, just writing, I said. Yes, I heard about your last book. It's quite a success, isn't it? It's doing quite well. Have you read it? I don't do much reading. And what have you been doing all these years, Uncle Bill? Oh, knocking about here and there. Worked for a soft drink company for some time, and then with a drug firm, my knowledge of chemicals was useful. Weren't you with Aunt Mabel in South Africa? I saw quite a lot of her until she died a couple of years ago. Didn't you know? No, I've been out of touch with relatives. I hoped he'd take that as a hint. And what about her husband? Died too, not long after. Not many of us left, my boy. That's why, when I saw something about you in the papers, I thought, why not go and see my only nephew again? You're welcome to stay a few days, I said quickly. Then I have to go to Bombay. This was a lie but I didn't relish the prospect of looking after Uncle Bill for the rest of his days. Oh, I won't be staying long, he said. I've got a bit of money put by in Johannesburg. It's just that, so far as I know, you are my only living relative, and I thought it would be nice to see you again. Feeling relieved, I set about trying to make Uncle Bill as comfortable as possible. I gave him my bedroom and turned the window seat into a bed for myself. I was a hopeless cook, but using all my ingenuity, I scrambled some eggs for supper. He waved aside my apologies. He'd always been a frugal eater, he said. Eight years in jail had given him a cast-iron stomach. He didn't get in my way, but left me to my writing and my lonely walks. He seemed content to sit in the spring sunshine and smoke his pipe. It was during our third evening together that he said, Oh, I almost forgot. There's a bottle of sherry in my suitcase. I brought it especially for you. That was very thoughtful of you, Uncle Bill. How did you know I was fond of sherry? Just my intuition. You do like it, don't you? There's nothing like a good sherry. He went to his bedroom and came back with an unopened bottle of South African sherry. Now, you just relax near the fire, he said agreeably. I'll open the bottle and fetch glasses. He went to the kitchen while I remained near the electric fire, flipping through some journals. It seemed to me that Uncle Bill was taking rather a long time. Intuition must be a family trait, because it came to me quite suddenly the thought that Uncle Bill might be intending to poison me. After all, I thought, here he is after nearly fifteen years, apparently for purely sentimental reasons. But I had just published a bestseller, and I was his nearest relative. If I was to die, 
Uncle Bill could lay claim to my estate and probably live comfortably on my royalties for the next five or six years. What had really happened to Aunt Mabel and her husband, I wondered? And where did Uncle Bill get the money for an air ticket to India? Before I could ask myself any more questions, he reappeared with the glasses on a tray. He set the tray on a small table that stood between us. The glasses had been filled. The sherry sparkled. I stared at the glass nearest me, trying to make out if the liquid in it was cloudier than that in the other glass, but there appeared to be no difference. I decided I wouldn't take any chances. It was a round tray made of smooth cashmere walnut wood. I turned it round with my index finger so that the glasses changed places. Why did you do that? asked Uncle Bill. It's a custom in these parts. You turn the tray with the sun, a complete revolution. It brings good luck. Uncle Bill looked thoughtful for a few moments, then said, Well, let's have some more luck, and turned the tray around again. Now you spoiled it, I said. You're not supposed to keep revolving it. That's bad luck. I'll have to turn it about again to cancel out the bad luck. The tray swung round once more, and Uncle Bill had the glass that was meant for me. Cheers, I said, and drank from my glass. It was good sherry. Uncle Bill hesitated. Then he shrugged, said, Cheers, and drained his glass quickly. But he did not offer to fill the glasses again. Early next morning he was taken violently ill. I heard him retching in his room, and I got up and went to see if there was anything I could do. He was groaning, his head hanging over the side of the bed. I brought him a basin and a jug of water. Would you like me to fetch a doctor? I asked. He shook his head. No, I'll be all right. It must be something I ate. It's probably the water. It's not too good at this time of the year. Many people come down with gastric trouble during their first few days in Foster Gange. Ah, that must be it, he said, and doubled up as a fresh spasm of pain and nausea swept over him. It was better by evening. Whatever had gone into the glass must have been by way of the preliminary dose, and a day later he was well enough to pack his suitcase and announce his departure. The climate of Foster Gange did not agree with him, he told me. Just before he left I said, Tell me, uncle, why did you drink it? Drink what? The water? No. The glass of sherry into which you'd sipped one of your famous powders. He gaped at me, then gave a nervous, whinnying laugh. You will have your little joke, won't you? No, I mean it, I said. Why did you drink the stuff? It was meant for me, of course. He looked down at his shoes, then gave a little shrug and turned away. In the circumstances, he said, it seemed the only decent thing to do. I'll say this for Uncle Bill. He was always the perfect gentleman. Hi, this is Tony Walker. I would like to remind you that you can become a patron of the Classic Ghost Stories podcast. Patrons get access to the library of member-only stories, and I'm doing a new member-only story at least once per month at the moment. You'll also get the joy of supporting me in the work so I can continue to produce the regular podcast. You can become a patron by signing up at www.patreon.com forward slash Barkid, B-A-R-C-U-D. So if you did feel that you wanted to support my work, it would be great to have you on board at Patreon.
Everybody dies, don't they? Well, those were three stories by Ruskin Bond, who was an Indian author, as I'm sure you've guessed. And there, two of them come from his collection, Time Stops at Shamley. The one that was actually recommended to me by a patron, by Francie, I think I'm saying that right, on September the 23rd, 2021, um, was uh, The Eyes Have It, which was the second one about the blind girl. And that actually wasn't from that collection, but I managed to hunt him down. Obviously, they're very short stories, so I thought, well, just to, just to give you something to listen to, uh, I'd do three. And I thought they were very charming, although no supernatural content. Although, of course, you know, I've said before, we've done other ones like um, The Story of an Hour, which have not been supernatural. And so it's sometimes just nice to mix things up. And it was a pleasant sunny day, so I thought, I'm not feeling very ghostly today, so let's do those. I must admit that I hadn't actually heard of Ruskin Bond before he was recommended. And I think at that time we'd done Iqbal Hussein's The Runaway Bride, which is actually set in Pakistan. But of course, at the time when this story, these stories come from, I think it was pre, pre-partition, though I may be mistaken. But anyway, let us say something about Ruskin Bond. So Ruskin Bond was born of to English parents in India, in the Punjab, in Kasauli, in the Punjab, um, when it was part of the British Empire. His father taught English to the princesses of the Indian princely state of Nawanaga. So how India was ruled in those days was there were, um, well, you know, the history of British India is that it starts off with small um, trading outposts which were run by the East India Company and eventually after the Indian mutiny, so-called, in the 1850s when the Indians tried to kick the British out, they, um, they it was taken over by the British Empire directly, the British government, but, and Queen Victoria, of course, was Empress of India, so she said, and then um, there were still some of the the original princes and uh, nobility of the Indian, pre-British Indians who'd negotiated their semi-independence in a similar way to the Romans did at times with the, the native inhabitants of wherever they conquered. So this isn't meant to offend anybody. Uh, so, yeah, so to just give you a bit of context, that his father, Aubrey Ruskin, taught English to these princesses of the, of this, of the rulers, of the, the maharajas of these states. When he was eight, the Second World War broke out and his father signed up to the Royal Air Force, but was posted to New Delhi. He actually left his mother, the father, yeah, and married an Indian woman from the Punjab, a Hindu from the Punjab. But uh, as far as I can tell, um, Ruskin Bond himself is not r- racially Indian, if that has any meaning at all. You know what I mean by that. He's not one of the indigenous population of India. He was from the British stock, but he has become an assimilated Indian. I, that is even rude to say that. He is Indian. He was born in India. He himself says that he's Indian. He's not Indian by religion. He's not a Hindu or a Muslim. I don't know what he's... I'm guessing he's probably Christian, uh, although there are many Indian Christians. Uh, or language, I guess, you know, he speaks Hindi, but he wasn't brought up speaking Hindi as his first language. So he says that um, religion didn't make him Indian and um, race didn't make him Indian, but history made him Indian. And he's undoubtedly Indian and sees himself as Indian. So he's an Indian writer. He writes of small town India, and he himself says in this uh, collection, again, I got this from archive.org, uh, the, 
time stops at Shimla, and it, he says it's it's the small town India is his India, and he spent most of his life in small town India. So it, he went to a British style boarding school in India at Shimla, which is one of the hill stations. So the hill stations were the cooler parts where the British would retreat in the hot months and they would all decamp up there and live a, a wild social turn there. But, you know, they were, they were up, tend to be up in the mountains. I may have said that when we went to India, we went to um, Uti, and, which isn't, you know, that's what the British called it. And we had a meal in this house that looked like it could have come from Scotland amidst the tea plantations up in the hills. And it was quite cool. We had big fires on. Um, because you're so high up. But uh, it was weird because there were pictures on the wall, faded pictures on the walls of Scotland and Cumberland, places very close to me, uh, yet in, in the middle of India. So that was interesting from my point of view and gave me a little insight, but not really into the life, the, this often scandalous goings-on at these hill stations. But anyway, um, Ruskin spent his early life there. He said his life up to the age of 10 was very happy, magical, he says. And then his father was killed during the war. Um, he went to boarding school, as I said, and he won a lot of writing prizes when he was there. And after finishing at Shimla, he went to the Channel Islands. Now, again, context, the Channel Islands are islands off the French coast that belong to the English crown. And how that happened was, you may remember, 1066, William the Conqueror, Duke of Normandy, was a duke who came from Normandy and conquered England. Now, of course, England became his, but he maintained the Duchy of Normandy, and these islands were part of the Duchy of Normandy. Now, over the centuries after that, there were lots of wars between England and France, and France reclaimed most of the territory, but not the Channel Islands. So these are... They were originally French-speaking, but they're pretty much English-speaking now, and they're just off the French coast, but they belong to England. Now, he had an aunt there... So Ruskin, when he left India, went there. There wasn't much going on in the Channel Islands in terms of careers for a young man, so he went to London, and he'd written this novel called A Room on the Roof, which was published when he was only 22 and won him a prize, the uh, Llewellyn Rees Prize, John Llewellyn Rees Prize. And it, it's a story of um, small-town India, really. But using that money, and I think he was in London for a couple of years, but once the royalties started coming in, he used that money to get his trip back, seafare back to Bombay, and, and then he never really left India again, uh, or, and particularly lived in small-town India. I think he lived in New Delhi as well for a bit, but he, he settled down in the place where he lives still, Mussoorie, and this is his India, and he talks about how... He says something in the introduction to The Time Stops at Shimla, saying something about, you know, maybe he's missed out on Calcutta and Bombay and places like that, but he actually is quite happy in the small towns, which he says change less than the big cities. And he's probably true there. He's probably right there. So of the stories themselves, the first one is about a girl who turns into a leopard to have revenge on her rude teacher. Most of us would have probably wanted that ability when we were younger, Few of us are granted, maybe some of you are wear creatures. I don't know. I certainly never managed to shape shift at all. I certainly, I spent a lot of time trying. That isn't actually true, um, but I never managed it. And then there's a very neat prize-winning story about, again, twist. We like stories with a twist. They're very simple. And here is a blind man on, on a train 
trying to impress a young woman and not let her see that he's blind. And it turns out that she's blind as well. Twist, twist. Okay. And the third one was a more, in many ways, a more European story, even though it's set in India, in that the protagonists are British. The, 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 and it's all about the end of empire and how Uncle Bill ends up going to South Africa, as, as does Aunt Mabel. But he poisons a lot of people. And so there's a lovely little twist there, and he makes himself sick. And I love the end of it, you know. He thought it was the only decent thing to do, and this shows our protagonist that Uncle Bill basically at heart was a decent chap, even though he was a murderer and a poisoner and an adulterer and a thief and a blackmailer, potentially. I don't know if we, he was a blackmailer. So they're very neat little stories. None are really supernatural. I see that uh, Ruskin Bond talks about ghost stories. He writes the odd ghost story of his 500. I think he says there's three. Uh, he's written three at least. And he says the guy he most admires as a writer of ghost stories is Lafcadio Hearn. And I always wonder if I've said that name right. Now, you come across Lafcadio Hearn in ghost story anthologies. He was an Irishman who lived in the States and then ended up in Japan and he became very enamoured of Japanese culture and naturalised. I don't want to, again, people are easy to offend, so please don't think I'm trying to offend. I wonder if it's a similarity because these are two ethnically European people who have settled in the different cultures of the East, one in India and one in Japan, and have completely been captivated by the culture of those places and set their literature. Of course, Lafcadio Heian lived a long time in Japan, but uh, he wasn't born in Japan, whereas, of course, Ruskin Bond one was born in India and he's Indian. I don't know if Lafcadio Heian ever became Japanese, but uh, anyway, I just see that similarity and I wonder if it's that. Now, it also reminds me, I'm long overdue to do a story of Lafcadio Heian's um, because I haven't done them, I've meant to do them. I've got them, I've got copies of them, but I haven't actually recited any, narrated any, whatever you call it. We've had lovely weather here today. It's been a bit unsettled. I think the rest of the UK, or England at least, has had a heat wave, but we haven't until today. We are much cooler up here, and when people go on about record-breaking temperatures and I'm sitting with my coat on, but today I can't, I can't say anything because uh, it was very nice and I managed to get out into the Lake District and took some video footage for a project I'm doing. So I might as well say the project now. You know, I try different things and I, I'm a big lover of poetry and I've recorded, I've got a thing called the Classic Poetry Podcast site, which I'm building up and I've done a few of those. And, but I wanted to have some nice video footage to, to be the background. I want to do Wordsworth Prelude. So I was going to go and collect some, and I have been collecting some footage from the Lake District um, and it looks pretty nice. Today was a bit bright, actually. I could have done with a lens cap on, you know, a, a, a filter to tint it down a little bit. But um, I can do something with it, I think. It looks pretty nice, and it's just very tranquil anyway, so that's going to be the background to the prelude when I get around to it. I don't know when I'm going to record that, maybe tomorrow. So, and then um, it's Sheila's birthday next week, next weekend, uh, we went away, we managed to salvage, if you've been following this saga, you'll remember that our camping holiday in Wales was torpedoed by the theft of the catalytic converter from my car 
in Shrewsbury. And we had three enforced, but nevertheless quite pleasant days in Shrewsbury, which were very up and down because nothing was working and it was very stressful. But actually, the place and the what we did there and the weather was glorious, but it was very stressful because things kept going wrong regarding the car and the insurance. They weren't going to cover the insurance. It was just a nightmare. And then my mother was taken suddenly quite ill. So we had to come back home, the 200 and however miles it is, and um, on the train. And I was very worried about my mum. Now, in fact, she's been in hospital a couple of weeks now and is much better than I've seen her for ages. So they're going to send her for a replacement heart valve. But at the moment, she hasn't had that. And she's back in hospital. She's loving being in hospital because she's got all, all the other patients in the ward to, uh, to chat to. There's always somebody coming in and out. She's looked on, they cook for her. They do things for her. The nurses are in and out. The handsome doctors come and see her. Um, and so she's absolutely having a great time. And, of course, we have had a, um, a rotor between my brother and his wife and me and my daughters and his sons. So we try, we try to have somebody with her every day, and she's loved that as well because she hasn't seen us all so much for ages. So she's got to have this operation. She's got to have some kind of cardiac stress test tomorrow. She had, she had loads of tests, CT on her heart, to look at the valve and measure it up. But um, it's whether her heart will survive the surgery, which is, you know, a slight worry. She's all for it. I'm, And then she wants to go home, and I'm like, I'm not sure she can go straight home, but... I'm sure that you may have had similar conversations with elderly relatives when they're absolutely telling you they're fine to go home and you are not so sure that she will manage. She wasn't managing fantastically well, really, once we uncovered it or once we went into her room and found with her arthritis, she couldn't put things away. She couldn't put a cover on her bed or anything. So the things that need to be done. But, I mean, but for now, and let's take each gift when it's given to us, she um, is feeling a lot better and she's seeing us all and seeing loads of other people and she's appearing to sort of enjoy herself. And because she's being looked after, I'm not as worried um, as I have been about her. We, we, however, because she was looking a bit better, we managed to salvage the last two days in Montgomeryshire um, in these, these secret yurts, these luxury yurts, which were fantastic. They were just in the middle of a wood. Now, I want to tell you something. We live now in Carlisle in a city, and it's much quieter than the wood. About half past four in the morning when the sun came up, all the sheep, the horses, the birds, and various other snuffling creatures, badgers and foxes and who knows what, all start making a tremendous row. The foxes bark all night. The horses whinny every now and again when they get uh, woken up by something. Uh, so it was really, really noisy. But I'm only joking. It was absolutely blissful. It was wonderful. And there were hot tubs as well. So we were only there two nights. and but, but it was we were in a wood set away on our own, and the weather was lovely. And so we went in this hot tub, and uh, it was okay. And then the next night we were going to go out and see my friend Steve, Mushroom Steve, as I, you can ask yourself questions why he's called that. Um, I hadn't seen him for 20 years, as it turned out. So it was nice to see him again. He's built himself a gypsy caravan. And he lives in this remote farm where he's pretty much uh, self-sufficient in produce, as far as I can tell. I mean, they've stockpiled um, pasta, but I think they've got they grow all their own vegetables and things. So anyway, it was really nice to see him. But we were going out to see him, and Sheila wanted to get the most of the hot tub. So we had to rush back. We went to Montgomery, and we rushed back, and it was very nice. The hot tubs, I don't really get them, though. Because, I mean, I got in it and it was hot. It was just like having a bath outside. 
So I'm like, okay. And in the end, I got out. It was too hot. So, but Sheila, Sheila enjoyed it. So, and I enjoyed the the nature of it. I didn't enjoy much of the drive back on the crowded motorways, but never mind. So there we are. So that's about up to date uh, with me and us. I am going to do this poetry thing. I'll keep doing the stories. Don't worry. Um, I'll keep posting them. We're off to me and the girls. My daughters, Imogen and Catherine, we're off to Boston and then Providence, Rhode Island, and then New York, because I've got my half-brother Michael living in New York, and I haven't seen him for a long time as well. So that's what we're doing end of July, but I'll probably get a few recordings in before then. That is to say, if the flights aren't cancelled. I've got a morbid fear now that all my plans are going to go wrong like they did for the camping trip. But there's no reason why they should, apart from the fact that they're cancelling loads of flights. But as far as I'm aware, they haven't cancelled ours yet. So I'm looking forward to getting to America. I haven't been there since um, for about five years. Um, we're on a different coast as well. I've never been to New England. I've been to New York before, but uh, I'm looking forward to it very, very much. podcast host Captivate FM have recently introduced something which means I can run adverts in the podcast. I don't want you to see this as a nuisance. I want you to see this as a way that I can be funded to free up more time to produce more content for you. If you know anyone who would like to advertise on this podcast where we currently get around 10,000 listens a week, please get in touch via the email in the show notes.